0: Turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 9. Do you remember as a kid how important a promise was? When I say the words, I promise to my kids, they do not forget it. (laughs) I do not use those words very often because they will hold me to it like forever. When I was a kid and we really wanted to demonstrate our absolute commitment to something, we used what's called a pinky promise Do you guys remember the pinky promise? When someone stuck out their pinky finger and said, let's pinky promise, that was so serious. Because as the legend goes, if they broke a pinky promise, you got to do what? Do you know? You got to break their pinky finger. (laughs) Now, I know, it's crazy. Now, I never saw someone get their pinky broken. We were not in the mafia. We were not that hardcore But it certainly made the promise seem a lot serious, a lot more serious. You know, sadly, as we grow up, we we learn that people do break promises. Uh, We live in a world where people's word and commitment does not always mean very much. We've all experienced being let down and, and disappointed in someone when they didn't do something they promised they would do. But have you ever felt that way toward God we probably wouldn't say it out loud but I'd venture to say a lot of us have struggled with those thoughts maybe you prayed and you prayed and you prayed for God to do something to to heal someone to save someone to help you in this dire situation and he didn't do it and deep down you wondered if God had forgotten about you or or what was his deal or maybe because of your own struggles or your lack of growth in your faith, you've wondered if God has taken back his promise to save you. You thought, man, am I still saved? Does God still love me or has he given up on me? At the heart of those feelings and thoughts is this question Is God faithful? That question is the title of our message today because this is the very question the Apostle Paul is going to answer for us as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Uh, If you've been here with us on Sunday mornings, then you know we spent the last several months walking through the letter to the Roman church. We knocked out the first eight chapters, and that was the halfway point where we stopped. And then we took a four-week break for our Easter series looking at uh, what Jesus did through the lens of Isaiah so we need to do a little review today. Get us back up to speed, because if you're like me, you get to the middle of the week, and I think, what did I preach on Sunday? So we need a little recap here. You'll remember Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, interesting guy. He was persecuting the church until Jesus showed up, and he was turned radically into a missionary. He became one of the guys who started many of the first churches in the world. He wrote a lot of the New Testament, including this letter, called Romans. It's a letter to the church in the city of Rome. He had never met these folks personally, but he hoped to see them. He knew they were a key part of his ministry, so he wrote this letter as an introduction to who he was, what he believed, and what the gospel was all about. And that is really the heart of this letter. It's a letter about the gospel, which is the good news that Jesus saves. Paul began explaining the gospel, do you remember, with the bad news. He said, we're all sinners who've rejected God, and as a result, we stand under his judgment and wrath. That was the bad news. But God, but God loves us, and he wants to have a relationship with us. So he He had a plan to fix our sin problem. He sent his son Jesus to the earth to die in your place, and he raised him from the dead to give you eternal life. That was his solution. That's the good news of the gospel. It's all about Jesus And then we saw how we respond to that. It's very simple. It's faith. We respond by putting our faith in Jesus. And once we do that, Paul said, we're justified. We are completely forgiven. We have the righteousness of Christ. We are sons and daughters of God. We are co-heirs with Christ. We've been adopted. That's our identity. And because of that, nothing can separate us from the love of God. That's where we ended Romans chapter 8, rejoicing in the good news of what Jesus has done for us in Christ. But all this good news and rejoicing has brought to mind a very big concern for some of these first century Christians. Let's remember that the Roman church had in it Jewish Christians, meaning people who had grown up learning the Old Testament, following the law. They were raised hearing all these promises to the nation of Israel. They were told that they were the chosen people of God. But now they're hearing Paul say that anyone who rejects Jesus stands condemned under his wrath. And here was the problem. That included most of the Jewish people they knew, their friends, their family. So the Jewish Christians who had trusted Jesus, they were wanting to know, Paul, is God done with the nation of Israel? Is he really going to condemn them? And better yet, did God break his promises in the Old Testament? Did he change his mind? Did he take back his word? And then you had the folks on the other side. There were also Gentile Christians in the Roman church. They had no connection to the nation of Israel. But they came into the church. They're learning about all this history. They're learning about the Old Testament. And some of them were likely thinking, hey, you know, these Jewish folks, they killed Jesus. And it makes sense that God has some wrath towards them, but... If God broke his promise to them, then how do we know he won't break his promise to us? At the heart of these concerns from these first century Christians was this one big question, the same one we saw that we have too. Is God faithful? Paul had heard these questions and concerns so much that he decided to devote a major section of his letter to this issue. He needed to play some defense. He needed to defend his gospel message and ultimately to defend God. He needed to explain how Israel and the church and the Old Testament and the gospel and all these things fit together. That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 are. And it's so important that we understand something right off the bat. In fact, I'm going to try to tell you this every single week. Paul Did not write Romans 9 through 11 to explain a theological system or to cause debates and controversy. He wrote it to address a real concern that he had and to help encourage the church in crisis. Believe it or not, Romans 9 through 11 was actually written to bring unity to believers, not division like it often has. And that's the approach we're going to take with these difficult chapters. Listen, I'm not going to settle any of the debates. I'm not going to answer all the questions, and I am not going to make everyone happy. (laughs) We're going to focus on why God inspired Paul to write these words and what they mean for our lives today. I don't think many of us lay awake at night thinking, God, why did so many Jewish people reject you? And what about these Gentiles getting saved? You know, That was the first century concern, and those are important questions. But we may all lay awake at some point in our lives wondering, God, are you faithful? Do you really keep your word? Can I really trust you despite what I see going on around me, despite what's happened in my life? That's the heart of Paul's argument, and that's the focus of our message today. So with all that introduction out of the way, and that was a lot, let's walk through today's text piece by piece, and we'll come in at the end And apply it. But look with me now at Romans chapter 9. Let's start in verses 1 through 3. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. My kinsmen according to the flesh. First, notice the shift here from Romans 8 to Romans 9. I and mean, Paul goes from this big celebration of God's love to, to, to this. Look at his tone. He's setting up something, this, this argument he's got in Romans 9 through 11. And, and Paul wants us to see that this is not just some kind of theological thought exercise. Siri found something on the web for me from Romans 9. Thank you. I've already got this one covered, though. I've got to find a way to disable that. Anyway. Paul wants us to see this is not just a theological exercise for him. This is not just some sort of fun theory. This is a real life issue for him. This is something that's weighing heavily on him. His heart is broken when he thinks about all the Jewish people who've rejected Jesus. So he's really emphasizing his sincerity. He says, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying here. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish. He's piling up these words to make a big point. And one of the reasons he speaks this strongly is because he's been accused, likely, of not caring about the Jews. Let's remember that God called Paul to be the missionary to the Gentiles. So he spent most of his ministry trying to reach people outside the nation of Israel. He often criticized Jewish Christians for uh, excluding Gentile believers or trying to add things onto their faith. So Paul received the unfair reputation of being partial to the Gentiles. And here's Paul refuting that in the strongest possible way to the point where he says, If it were possible, I wish I could be cut off from Christ. In other words, I would go to hell myself for the sake of my brothers. Paul felt so strongly about the lostness of the Jewish people that he was willing to trade his salvation for theirs. He calls them his his kinsmen according to the flesh. These are Paul's people. Paul was a Jew himself. He's not writing here about some distant nation or foreign group. No, these were his friends. These were people in his family. So one thing we need to pause right here and take away is Paul's passion for the lost. He understood the stakes that those apart from Christ spend eternity in hell. And he so loved lost people that he was willing to give himself for their sake. Man, that is an example for us to follow. That's the kind of passion and concern that we need to have for the lost world around us. And as we'll see, these verses really set the stage for what's to come. So I want to encourage you, be sure to keep this in mind as we keep going. We've got to remember that for Paul, this was personal. This was an issue of eternity for him. But He continues to describe, the Jew, to describe the Jewish people, look at verses four and five. It says, "They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. It's significant right here that Paul calls his people Israelites. You remember early in the letter, he referred to them as Jews. And that title, Jew, had political and national significance. But to call them Israelites shows their religious significance, that they were the people of God. And that's the title he's going to use in this section. He then lists out seven spiritual blessings the nation of Israel had as God's chosen people. First, he said they had the adoption of all the nations of the world. God chose the nation of Israel to be his people. They had the glory. He chose to dwell in their midst. They had the covenants. God made a personal agreement with them to be their God. They had the law, which reflected the character of God. They had the worship. They were able to go to God with sacrifices and feasts and worship him. They had the promises. God had committed himself to them. They had the patriarchs. They could actually trace their ancestry to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these people. But here's the biggest blessing they received. The Messiah, Jesus himself, the savior of the world, God in human flesh was one of them. When God came into the world, he chose to be born into their nation and to become one of them. So the Israelite people, out of all the people on the planet, were the most spiritually blessed people of all. they have been given everything. These were not just stories in history for them. This was their story. This was their history. Jesus was their own brother, their own flesh and blood. And yet, despite all of that, despite all their spiritual blessings, they had, for the most part, rejected Jesus as their Savior. They had turned away from God's plan of salvation, and now they stood under His wrath. And unless they believed upon Christ, they would spend eternity apart from Him forever. How could that happen? What went wrong? I mean, do you feel this burden that Paul is wrestling with? Do, do you get this sense of what he's dealing with? Is this a real concern? Well, here's where he begins to defend defend God. Look at verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. If you want, underline, star that, make a mental note. This is the big one. It is not as though the word of God has failed. This is his thesis statement, really, for all of chapter 9 through 11. He wants us to see that despite our questions, despite our objections, despite the fact that the Jewish people have rejected Jesus, it's not God's word that has failed. God is not the problem here. God has not changed his mind. He's not taken back his word. He has not given up on his people. What happened then? We'll look at verses 6 and 7. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Uh, The problem Paul is saying is not whether or not God has kept his word. Rather, it's our understanding of his word. For not all who descended from Israel belong to Israel. Now, that's a little confusing at first blush. What does that mean? How can you descend from Israel and yet not belong to Israel? Well, it's clear he's using the word Israel in two different ways here. He's saying there's physical Israel. There are people who were by blood related to Abraham. They were ethnically Jewish. And then within that group, there was spiritual Israel, true Israel, those who belong to the people of God. So this confirms for us something we saw earlier in the letter. Not everyone who came down the line of Abraham and had Jewish blood in their veins was actually his child. Having a relationship with God is not based on who your mama is or who your daddy is or what ethnicity you are. It's based on something else. What is that? What's it based on? How do we know who the children of God are? Look at the rest of verses 7 through 9. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Ding, ding, ding. There's the million-dollar word. It's promise. Promise. It's not about flesh or race or heritage. It's about the promise. What promise is he talking about? Well, we got to go back. got to go way back, all the way back to Genesis to the story of Abraham. Do you remember Abraham and Sarah? They were both very advanced in age. They couldn't have kids. They were childless, and yet God promised them a son. He said, through your son, I'm going to build a mighty nation of people who will bless the whole world. But time went on. They didn't have a son. More time went on. Still no son. So Abraham and Sarah, they got a little impatient. They decided they would take matters into their own hands. They got Abraham to marry Sarah's servant, Hagar. Or if you're in the south, we say Hagar. Hagar. But I'm going to say Hagar since I'm in the Midwest. And Abraham and Hagar, they they have a son together named Ishmael. And they think, well, there we go. We got a son. Promise is fulfilled, right? Well, not so fast. God says, no, that, that wasn't the promise. Remember, the promise was that God would give you a son. And he's going to do it in a miraculous way through Sarah, not Hagar. Ishmael is not the promised son who will bring about this chosen nation of people. The promise was through Isaac. So here Paul is reminding the Jewish people. From the very beginning, it was never about being biologically connected to Abraham. If that's all it took for you to have some DNA from Abraham in your body, then Ishmael would have been the promised child of God. But he wasn't. The Jewish people, they would have thought for a moment, they said, okay, well, yeah. I mean, Ishmael was not, he was Abraham's son, but he wasn't Abraham and Sarah's son. So, of course, that doesn't work. He wasn't the promised one. Paul goes a step further to prove his point. Look at verses 10 through 13. Not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's think about that last verse first, because I know that's the one that really startles people and grabs our attention. God hating someone, that doesn't sound right. Well, Paul here is actually quoting a verse from Malachi chapter 1. It's the last book of the Old Testament. It was originally written in Hebrew, and we know one of the features of Hebrew language is that they would use expressions to make a strong point. And that's what I believe is the case here. God's hatred and love, it's not about emotion like it is for us. It's not human hatred and love. Rather, these are relational words. This word hate speaks to God's rejection of Esau. Hopefully that that, that makes a bit more sense for you because that's Paul's point. He first showed how God chose Isaac over Ishmael. Then Isaac married Rebekah and they had twins, Jacob and Esau. Now Paul is showing how God chose Jacob over Esau. This again makes his point that it's not about DNA or race or ancestry that makes someone right with God. Clearly, Jacob and Esau, they were both physical descendants of God's promise through Abraham and Sarah, through Isaac and Rebekah. They both had Jewish ancestry, yet only one of them received God's promise. Only one of them was a true spiritual Israelite. And it wasn't the one that everyone would have expected. You see, in Bible times, the firstborn, the oldest son, he was given a special status and unique privileges. He would have received the best inheritance of his family. He would have been the leader. Now was Esau. Esau would have seemed to be the natural choice to continue on the line of the people of God. But that's not what happened. Paul reminds us that when Rebecca became pregnant by Isaac, God told her that the older son would serve the younger son. Things were going to be reversed. Jacob would be the son that would carry on the promise given to Abraham. Here's the big question. Why? Why did Jacob, even though he was the second born, the younger brother, why did he become the next one in God's promised line instead of Esau? Was it because he was a better person than his brother? Or maybe he loved God more than Esau did? Well, Let's look at what Paul tells us about when. About when Rebekah received this prophecy from God. Look again at verse 11 though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. Jacob was named the child of promise over Esau, his brother, before they were even born, before either of them had done anything good or bad. Okay, so if it wasn't based on their choices, on the way they lived or their love for God, then why Jacob over Esau? It actually tells us. Look at the rest of verse 11. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's the answer. Why Jacob over Esau? It's in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And that word election, it means choice. So simply put, Jacob was the son of promise over Esau because God chose him over Esau. And it wasn't because of works. It wasn't because of anything about them. It was simply because of God who calls. And that leads us back again to the big question. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why didn't he choose them both? And what is all this election talk about? And what does this mean for us? Well, I hate to do this to you, but you're going to have to come back next week to find out. i got to leave you on a cliffhanger there because that's what next, week, next week's passage is all about, God's election. But I want to pause here. Let, let's don't miss Paul's point in these verses before we get to next week. Being a part of true Israel, being a child of God, having a relationship with him is not something you can just inherit. It's not about your family lineage or who you're related to. As one author put it, it's not about race, it's about grace. So yes, God is faithful. His word has not failed. And we can apply that to our lives in two key ways today. Here's the first. Number one, God keeps his promises. The concern that the Jewish Christians had about God forsaking his people and breaking his promises was simply a misunderstanding of the meaning of his promises. See, when God made his famous promise to Abraham, his promise was not to save every single person who was born an Israelite. His intent was not that people would be made right with God on the basis of their national heritage. God's promise to Abraham was that he would make from him a great nation of people for himself and that these people would be comprised of many nations. And that's a promise that God kept. We see that all throughout the storyline of the Bible. God saves those who trust in him. Throughout all the disobedience and idolatry, all the horrible things that people do, God continues. He always saves a remnant. There's always this group of people who remain faithful to God, and he remains faithful to them. Yes, our God is a God who keeps his promises. In fact, it is impossible for God to break a promise or he would cease to be God. That would violate his own character, and Scripture tells us that cannot happen. Listen to this verse from Numbers 23, verse 19. It says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? We can trust that God will keep his promises, because he cannot lie, and he will keep his promises so long as he has actually promised it. Look, we don't get to decide what God's promises are. They're written in his word. For example, God has not promised to give us everything we want. But he has promised he will give us everything we need. And God has not promised to give us an easy life or that we're always going to be happy. But he has promised that we will find the fullness of joy and life in him. So Paul wants to make sure we see, despite our limited understanding... Despite the circumstances all around us, God keeps his promises to his people. He always has, and he always will. That's number one, our first takeaway. Here's the second. Number two, we are kept by God's promises. Because God is a God of his word, because he keeps his promises, we can know that he will keep us too because we are a part of his promises. God promised in Deuteronomy that he will never leave or forsake his children. He promised in Romans 8, do you remember, that he'd work all things together for our good, that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And Jesus himself promised that if you trust in him, no one can snatch you out of his father's hand. See, because of those promises and many, many more, we can know that God will keep us. And he does this despite our failures. I love this verse from 2 Timothy 2.13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. And we see this through the whole Bible. The very people of God who are commended for their faith, they have a lot of blunders, a lot of mess-ups, moments of doubt and sin. Just think about Abraham, Moses, David, all these people who were flawed, who at times struggled, they made huge mistakes, and yet God kept them. Because they were his. This kind of reminds me of, of rock climbing. You ever been rock climbing before? I'm not a big fan of heights, so I tend to avoid things that involve dangling my life over sharp rocks. But I've seen some guys on TV who do this thing called free climbing. You seen that? That means they climb huge cliffs, mountains with zero equipment. There's no ropes, there's no harness, there's not even any other people, it's just them. That means if they lose their grip or they miss a foothold, it's over. Praise the Lord, that is not the way we live the Christian life. When most people, most sane people, go rock climbing, they have a rope and a harness tied around their body. And they have a partner with them down below who supports them. So even if they were to slip or to lose their grip for just a moment, that rope would support them. Their partner would be able to keep them from falling to their death. See, that's the way we live the Christian life. We all slip and struggle at times, but God keeps us from falling. He holds us, and he will never let us go. This means our salvation. Our entire Christian life is not dependent on us. That's one of the huge points Paul wants to make in Romans 9. Was Isaac somehow better or more worthy than Ishmael? Was Jacob somehow a stronger or more devout person than Esau? No, the point is that none of them had earned their place with God, but their salvation wasn't based on anything they had done or would do. It was based on grace. God gave them grace, and they put their faith and trust in him, and the same thing is true of us today. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Our salvation comes by grace through faith in a faithful God. And his faithfulness means he will remain faithful to us and he will never let us go. So here's the question. Will you trust him? Even when your prayer seems to go unanswered. Even when things don't make sense from your perspective. Even when your feelings don't match up with what you know to be true about God. Even when it hurts, even when God takes everything away, will you trust him? Will you trust him to continue to be faithful in those moments like he's always been? Think about it. Has God ever not been faithful to you? God was faithful to create you and bring you into this world. He didn't have to do that. God was faithful to give you mercy despite your your sin. God was faithful to send his own son to die in your place, and he was faithful to raise him from the dead. To give you eternal life. And friends, he will be faithful today despite your doubts, your struggling, your struggles, your anger, your sadness, whatever it is. He will be faithful. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Let's go to God in prayer.